So hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Beyond the Cover. I am your host, John Robb, joined here by my wonderful co-host, Jeff Ayers. Jeff, how are you doing tonight? Doing fantastic, and hope you're doing the same. Uh, we are doing awesome. We're going to have a great show for you. We're bringing back a guest. Uh, we had her on for her debut book, Finding Mrs. Ford. She is none other than author Deborah Goodrich-Royce. She is going to be joining us, and she's going to be talking about her sophomore effort here on Ruby Falls. So very interested to talk to her about that. Want to remind everybody here that all of our books or, or all of our shows are brought to you by uh, Suspense Magazine. So make sure you visit suspensemagazine.com and don't forget our anthology with Jeffrey Deaver called Nothing Good Happens After Midnight, which includes Linwood Barkley, Hank Philippi Ryan, Reese Bowen, many many others. PW starred review, and that is out now. Uh, audio, hardcover, paperback, Kindle, and again, that is Nothing Good Happens After Midnight. And for all you KU Unlimited fans, it is available there, so you can read it for free if you're a member of KU Unlimited. So don't forget about that. All right. So without any further ado, let's bring on our guest on the show here. So, Deborah, we are so happy to have you back. Thanks so much for coming back on with us tonight. How are you doing? I'm doing great, and the pleasure is mine. I'm happy to be with you. Yeah, I'm just so happy that we did so well the first time that you wanted to come back, so that was great. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, it's good to get repeat people. Yeah, so we had a, you know, we had a great conversation talking about Finding Mrs. Ford, and that was your debut book, but now... You're taking it a little on, I guess you want to say, a little on the more emotional, psychological side here with your next book called Ruby Falls. So give us a little bit about what you got going on in this one. So Ruby Falls, I, I would say it's a gothic thriller, but by gothic I don't mean the modern version of gothic, like vampires and all that stuff. Right. There are no vampires in Ruby Falls, I'll tell you right now. It's gothic, like a Victorian gothic novel, like Jane Eyre or The Woman in White. It's spooky. You have a damsel in distress. You have a you know, dark, handsome stranger. You do not know if his intentions are good or not. Uh, the story begins with a little girl whose name is Ruby, who is in a cave in Chattanooga, Tennessee, that is called Ruby Falls. And she is with her father, and the tour guides have turned off the lights, and the water is falling, and it's pitch black dark, and she can't tell where it is, and she's scared to death. Because if you've ever been in a cave, you know, the sound echoes all around you. And as she's standing there and she's holding her father's hand and she's trying not to be afraid and she's trying not to fall in the water, her father lets go of her hand. And when the lights come back on, he's gone. I mean, completely gone. And she is in a state of shock, as you can well imagine. And that's the beginning of the book. That's where we start. Yeah, that is so cool, and um, I was bummed. I, I was bummed. I was. I missed the last time you were on the show, so um, I'm glad that you came back and I could talk to you. So thank you for that. But I'm curious. Um, one of the things that I noticed about this new novel of yours is the homage to Rebecca, and I'm wondering mm. if you could talk about that a little bit. 
Yeah, and you actually said it exactly right. It is not a rewriting of Rebecca, but it is an homage to, to elements of that book. So I come out of the film business, and I'm a lifelong reader, and I think probably you, most of the people listening would agree with me, there's no such thing as a new story. But what do you do with it? How do you play? Because it's a play when you take these themes and you twist them around. So like Rebecca, we have a heroine. Okay, so in Rebecca, mm-hmm. let's start with names. The heroine did not have a name. You never knew what her name was. Rebecca is the name of her husband's dead wife, his you know former wife. In Ruby right. Falls, our heroine has two names. Her name is Eleanor Ruby Russell. As a little girl, she's called Ruby. But after this trauma in Ruby Falls, she ditches that name. She doesn't like that anymore. So she grows <laughs> up as Eleanor Russell, and that is the name she has when she's an actress. As a young actress, she's cast in a remake of the Hitchcock film, Rebecca, and it's, uh, it's the 80s. It's the moment, you know, when horror films are coming along, so they're trying to take this film to a, uh, a scarier place than the original Hitchcock. So in that way, I kind of dance around Rebecca. Again, it's not a straight-up remake, and it's, it's twistier. It's much twistier. It, you know, it, it goes to places you're not expecting. You think you know where it's going. You don't. Nice. (laughs) Well, I remember, of course, talking to you about Finding Mrs. Ford, and the one thing that we talked about were secrets a lot. And this is what you've continued here in this theme of Ruby Falls because you have some pretty, um, I guess you want to say, explosive secrets that kind of come out of the end, and especially with Orlando. Love the name Orlando for a male name. It's just a great name. You know, it's Orlando. (laughs) Yes. Well, Orlando Montague is his name. Yeah. I mean, you you just know there's something going on there when you're named that. Right? Right? (laughs) So, I guess, so, so yeah, so my question is, is like, you know, so you kind of amped things up a little in this book. And that's mm-hmm. something that, you know, you kind of see when people are, you know, when you're doing thrillers, you, you want to try to amp the, the action up. And in the second book, you want, you want to continue on. So when you decided that you were starting to write Ruby Falls and you were getting into it, what part of that conscious decision did you make to know that you wanted to amp the action up more than what you had done before? Mm, that's a great question. So first of all, Ruby Falls, the first two chapters, downloaded into my little brain one fine day and I thought whoa what is that it was not the book I was intending to write I had something else I was noodling around with and that chapter in the cave and then the second chapter just appeared now I had to create a whole book out of it so it's easier said than done but it was um, it was inspiration now I had been to Ruby Falls as a child. My parents took me there. They didn't leave me there. But obviously it made an impression on me. Right. So this idea, how did I decide how to ramp it up? I mean, so when it arrived, that that beginning, that idea of this abandonment in the cave was so horrifying to me. And I don't know. I don't know where it came from. But it set the tone of the book as 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 being spookier. Yes, it deals with identity issues. 
very similar to Finding Mrs. Ford. Yes, it deals with secrets, but it has, like I said, a little bit of an eerier element. Mm-hmm. It's a little creepier. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, one of the other things that it shares uh, also with your other novel is uh, essentially sort of the past haunting your characters in the, as they're adults. Could you talk a bit about that? Yes. Um, I, yeah, that is, what was it, Faulkner, who said that the past is not dead, it's not even past, or I don't even know what he said, but he had a great, <laughs> uh, great line about the past. You know, if you look at our lives as this kind of tapestry that isn't going in a linear fashion, our life from beginning to middle and to the end, or, or is it more like a tapestry where you can kind of look at it one way or, and another way? I think the past is very present in anyone's life and all the decisions we make, uh, our perceptions, our reactions. So in... In the, the genre that I write in, it it's more consequential. Okay, I, I, I like that answer. Um, you mentioned this a bit ago, and I'm curious: um, when you write, do you write cinematically? Oh yes, <laughs> yes, I do. I mean, I how can you not? I mean, that's the medium you grew up in. I mean, it's it's yeah. in your blood. Yeah, I can't. I mean, I see it, and I I have to ramp myself back from it a bit to stick to the um, parameters of a novel. Although I prefer writing novels to screenplays, I, I it is not my gift to write screenplays. I see it that way. I see it all playing out in front of me, and I try to describe it as such so that the reader can see it as well. And to that point, I like to write so far, because I'm just finishing a third novel, I like to write real places with fictitious stories. I love reading a book and having the writer describe, you know, turning that corner, shadow of the wind, in Barcelona or... You know, and I've never even been to Barcelona in a way that you feel you can, you're there, you can picture it. I, I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's part of the cinematic thing. And I remember talking with Nick Santor one time, who producer who you might know, and he wrote a book called 16 Digits, and he said that his difficult, most difficult part was, he said, look, he goes, I can do a movie where a guy walks into a church, spits into the holy water, and walks out, and doesn't say a word, and you know everything you need to know about that character, and that he's evil. Yeah. He goes, now I've got to put that in words. He goes, that's, most, he goes, that's so difficult <laughs> to do. Yeah, it's very, well, it's the opposite problem, exactly. Yeah. So, but, but the thing is, is that you had to kind of learn really fast with book two because, of course, you know, book one, you have your whole life to write it. You had as many years as you wanted to to finish that. But then all of a sudden you sold it, you get the deal, and now they're like, all right, book two is due in eight months, and you're like, whoa. So how is that journey for you now, knowing that, okay, book one's done, now you're coming out with book two, you're into book three, but now your writing process is much different than it was for Finding Mrs. Ford. Boy, that's a good question. It's 
absolutely right. I'm finding that more now with book three. And I was a little bit saved by the curious bell of COVID, and I am not making light of COVID at all. So you're not going to touch it. Well, I did touch it. Uh, My third book is set in the pandemic of last year, but what happened with having the time to work on the third book, I was on, I was still on a book tour for the first book. I'd signed a deal for the second book, which was done, and COVID came along and shuttered the world to a stop for a period of time, which gave me a stretch of days to really stick my head into a third book in a more concentrated way than I might have had if COVID hadn't come along. Again, I'm not diminishing COVID for any right. all the suffering that people have had. I, I, I'm conscious of that. But in terms of time as a writer, it just stripped everything away for me. And so the third book is set in Palm Beach in the pandemic, and it begins when uh, two surfers sneak out of the house, two teenage boys, and find a hand on the beach, a human hand. So that's the third book. Boy, you're going even creepier. First you leave a six-year-old <laughs> in a cave, now you're finding human hands. <laughs> well, this is taking, this, you know what, this is going back to April Fool's Day, right? This is what we're doing. This is what we're doing. You know, a little bit, and I'm so glad you brought that up. The coolest thing happened last week with the, uh, God, 35th anniversary of April Fool's Day. I got to do a little chat about a scene breakdown for the American Film Institute. They were showing the film, and the Hollywood Reporter did a whole series featuring 91 years of films because they've been in existence for 91 years and they picked April Fool's Day for 1986 and I thought, wow. Yeah, I saw it night one in the theater. I saw it night one. Did you? Well, so what's really interesting, so April Fool's Day is similar to what I write. I know I was very influenced by it. I split genres. I, you know, I've got comedy, I've got thriller, I've got suspense. I've got all these things rolled in and the April Fool's Day was that, and I'm not sure people were kind of ready to grasp it at the time, but how nice that now it, it's taken its place a little bit in, in the history of film. Yeah, it is. I mean, you, you have, that's I mean, so that's, cool. you, yeah, I mean, you have Groundhog Day. No one can ever do a Groundhog Day movie again. You have April Fool's Day. No one can do right. another April Fool's Day movie again like that. When I left that theater, and I know Jeff has a question, but when I, had, when I left that theater, I just remember scratching my head going, did I see a fucking horror movie or did I not? What did, did, <laughs> I was like, did, did I see a, I, did, I didn't really see a horror movie, did I? But I did. <laughs> And I don't know. I'm sorry, people, if it was spoilers, but, I mean, we're all talking 35 years later. If you haven't seen it, yeah. I just bought it about a year ago for 4.99 on Apple, and I think I've watched it 20 times since because I love breaking down scenes of those movies that I love like that. And it's just it, – it's, it, it's hilarious. I did. I scratched my head, and my friend, and we were going, did we see a horror movie? And I said, we think so. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's exactly what it was. It was it was it was brilliant. <laughs> just 
brilliant. Well, I, I'm going to ask a question um, about one of your TV appearances because I was a huge fan of the A-Team, and you were on one of my favorite episodes of that show. I was the tow truck one called Knights of the Road. Do you have any um, stories about working with uh, Prepard and Mr. T or any of those folks? I do have a story. <laughs> uh-oh, uh-oh. So, yes, I played Jenny, the daughter of the tow truck uh, operation owner. And so I remember, God, it really struck me. I, it, mostly it was great. It was fine. But I was getting ready to do some scene, and everybody was on the set, and I asked, the director a question. I said, do I need to be wired for a mic or are you going to use a boom in this shot? And in front of the entire cast and crew, he said, darling, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. (laughs) And I was so embarrassed because I thought, well, was that really a stupid question I just asked? Maybe it was a stupid question. I don't think it was a stupid question. Uh So that's my memory of that show. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Well, I have to ask, you, you have this background in acting, and you've done a bunch of other things. What made you decide you wanted to become a writer? So my journey from acting to writing took, it unfolded in a few steps. My first husband and I had two children, and we moved to France in the early 90s. I was still acting, but he had an opportunity in France. He had grown up there. We moved. And while there, my kids were little. Acting wasn't really happening for me there. And I was hired by a French film studio as a reader. And all, fr- all film studios have readers on the payroll. You know, it's a freelance position. You read screenplays and novels. You synopsize them for the bosses. And then you do a page of, you know, comments about what works, what doesn't, and always you end with comps. You know, what is it like? Is this... April Fool's Day meets Gone with the Wind. Is this Star Wars meets Nightmare on Elm Street? What is this thing? So I was doing that in the early 90s, living in France, and I thought, this is kind of amazing. I, it was Talk about a great mommy job with little kids. My, and then we moved back to New York. My first husband took a big job working for Julia Roberts. She had a deal with Disney, and she hired him as, um, to run her development office. And I was hired by Merrimack Studios, by, actually by Harvey Weinstein, to be the story editor, which is like a book editor at a film company. It was, you know, a big step up from being a reader. And so in the 90s, that's what I did. And Miramax, for me, was like my writing school in a way. I was in having that opportunity to edit the work of, you know, great writers, I was really honing my understanding of what writing was. And I did that job for a few years, and it was very intense. The workload was very heavy. I ended up leaving the job, and then I ended up getting divorced. And 
in the ensuing years, I was always writing, and I was in, in two different writing groups, and it came to a point. So my, my second husband and I restored a cinema in Stanford, Connecticut, and in the process of running this cinema, crazy project, we became friends with the actor Gene Wilder. He was uh, involved with the cinema. He would come and do a regular series every year where he would talk about films. And in this process, Gene and I had a writing correspondence email. And so he said to me at one point, are you a writer? I think you're a writer. And, you know, I was a very closeted writer then. I was like, oh, you know, maybe, yeah, gosh, I guess so. And he very generously offered to read something I'd written. So I sent him something. He was very encouraging. And every time I would talk to him after that, he would say, are you writing? I hope you're writing. I hope you're writing. Oh, so there came so kind of this moment. Yeah. I mean, there came a moment. It was actually 2014. My youngest child left the house. I felt like I felt this huge expanse of my brain space available to me again. And I thought, well, if I'm ever going to do this, I've been kind of playing around with this for a long while. I better do it. And that's when I got serious. <clears throat> real, real quick, Jeff, I know you have a question. But if people want to see that theater, you can go to YouTube because there's a great April Fool's Day 25th reunion anniversary show that Deborah did in that theater with Deborah Foreman, Amy Steele, and I forget the other girl. But you had a great, and I. And I've wa- okay, and I've watched that on YouTube maybe 15 times, um, <clears throat> but it was in, but it, that's in your theater that you did that in, which is beautiful. Yeah, that's in the Avon, and yeah. the Avon is actually open. We opened in June of last year after the real shutdown of COVID, and the Avon is doing great. I mean, great. You know, we out the seats, we take your temperature, you wear a mask, and. Whew, knock on wood, the Avon has has weathered the storm relatively. That's beautiful. I'm so happy to hear that. And it's a gorgeous theater. When you, if everybody wants to see that on YouTube, it is, and it's a great hour talk. I love it because I think, is because I because you're stuck there on stage not knowing where the other three were at the beginning. They're all in the bathroom. (laughs) They're all in the bathroom. (laughs) Yes, that's true. Yeah, it's a beauty. 1939 cinema in Stanford, Connecticut. The Avon hour outside of New York. Um, Gorgeous. And right now we're showing that Michelle Pfeiffer film, French Exit. Oh, okay. Yep. Nice. Okay. Cool. Um, One of the the things that uh, John and I always argue about is series versus standalones. So I have to ask you, because you're writing Mm. standalone books, do you have thoughts about creating a series character? (laughs) People so you know what side I'm on. People have asked me over and over for a sequel to Finding Mrs. Ford. I don't know. All I know is there are two producers who have optioned it, and, you know, they are probably more inclined to try to sell it as a limited series than as a film. I always okay. envisioned it as a film because I think it has, a very, um, you know, clear beginning, middle, and end. Sure. But their their vision is more of a limited series. So 
I'd listen, I'm happy with anything there. Really? Would yeah. I write a sequel to the book? Uh, let's see what happens. And with Ruby Falls, I'm, well, let's see what happens. You know, I mean, God knows. People come along 100 years later and write prequels. You know, talk about oh, sure. gothic stories. Uh, there's Jane Eyre, and then there was the prequel, The Wide Sargasso Sea, which was written decades later. So, I mean, I guess the sky's the limit with all that stuff. But for so, now, I'm writing you, a standalone book. But you don't have any plans okay. to, yes, you don't have any plans to write like a series where you're starting with, you know, one person like a detective and it's going to be their series. Because your style is not conclusive to that way. I mean, you know, Holland Coben does that, but he does have a series. He does something else. But his standalones, you know, you guys in the same kind of thing. It's, it, it, it can only happen like once to that person. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's no, what it is. I do not have... It's a life story that, that can only happen once. Yeah. yeah. That, that kind of observer character. That's, that's what you really need. You need that detective. You need that, you know, I'm going to say Jimmy Stewart in Vertigo. You need that guy who gets completely twisted around by the Kim Novak character. Could you have a sequel to that? Sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's pretty bad what happens to him, but maybe you could. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it would ruin the original, though. So yeah, <laughs> I get you. Yeah, well, that's true. Yeah. So so real quick before before I we, we wrap up here, I do I do just have one more April Fool's Day question. If you could just, is there any funny story that happened when you were filming that was just between between you and anybody? Funny story, April Fool's Day, between me and anybody. Well, yeah, you know, the whole end of the movie that disappeared, that required me, part of the end of the movie, as I had to run top speed through a dark British Columbian forest in the night and knowingly fall, but act like I didn't know I was going to fall, into a pond filled with those you know, snakes, that, not snakes, I mean spiders. I'm mixing up my, my vermin. Yeah. Those spiders that skitter on the top of the pond. So that wasn't so much between me and anybody. It was between me and the spiders. Uh, <laughs> that was one story that I had to do over and over and over again. And then we didn't even use it. Yeah, that was even in the movie. Of course but, not. <laughs> but, but you did end up hurting yourself in the well scene when you fell. I remember reading about that. Said. I got an ear infection is what That's what happened. it was, an ear infection, yeah. Yeah, like a three-week-long ear infection. I don't know, maybe I had like amoebas in my ear or something. That water was so gross. <laughs> it was disgusting. <laughs> and so, and when you came out of the closet, was Chaz really lying there on the bed? Was that really him At, in that scene yeah. where you died? Oh, yeah, Or you died? Yeah, it was not a double. Okay, so he was, was really lying there. Runner. Yeah. Okay. And the other story was, you know, uh, April Fool's Day was my second feature film after just one of the guys. In yeah, the, the same character. Yeah, it Clayton Rohner. And I thought, oh, are we going to be like uh, Judy Garland and Mickey Yeah, <laughs> He was Rick and just one of the guys. Yes, he was. Great yeah. guy, by the way. And the one, and now the only other thing, and you probably know this, <laughs> here I go getting geeky, I'm sorry, but... The co, but the star of just one of the guys, I forget her name, but she. Okay, do you know what music video she was in? 
Was it with Bruce Springsteen? Because she used to date him. <clears throat> no, that's Courtney Cox. She was in oh. I Can Dream About You, Dan Hartman's video. She's, oh. in, she's in his video. She's the main girl in the video. Well, I'm not surprised. There you go, yeah. He's and poor Dan Hartman. <laughs> Yeah. Poor Dan Hartman passed away of a brain tumor about five years after that. He's not oh, – for Dan Hartman, for everybody who knows, is not the black guy that is in the movie. That, that's not the group. Dan Hartman is a, is a white guy with, like, curly hair. <laughs> Doesn't even look anything like what you would think singing that song. But, wow. you know, so huh. I, I'm the geeky guy. So, that's a good <laughs> – <laughs> So – the best place for everyone to find out about all of your stuff, of course, is your website, DeborahGoodrichRoyce.com. Exactly. Or Instagram. Okay. I'm very active on Instagram. I was just going to ask which social media you're more active on. So Instagram? Mostly Instagram. I mean, I do okay. all of them, but I, not TikTok yet. I haven't done any TikTok. Uh, someone was yeah. just talking to me about that today. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know if I could do that. <laughs> I, can't, I can't video myself. I just can't. <laughs> I hate going back sure. and listening to the shows because I don't want to hear my voice. I'm like, I really don't want to see my face. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. I don't know how you guys do it, doing a movie and having to go back and then watch yourself. To, it's I, very would, hard. I would sweat and I would just not, I'd pass out. <laughs> it's very hard. Yeah, you, you really called it. It's, it's no. not easy, that. Yeah. So, Deborah. We want to thank you so much for coming on. Everybody, the book is called Ruby, Four, Ruby Falls, comes out May the 4th. Um, and is the audio coming out at the same time? It is. And okay, good. And they used a fabulous actress, a different actress from my first book, a younger voice, a more tentative voice, no. perfect voice for Ruby no. Falls. So audio, hardcover, right. Kendall, May the 4th, Ruby Falls. Deborah, thank you again so much for coming on. It's always a pleasure. We wish you nothing but the best. We'll talk soon. Thank you. You guys are great. Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye. We'll have to have you back for the bye. third one. <laughs> yes, come back for Bye. book three. Can't wait. Yes.